It was called Triple Bach. It really was the lunatic fringe of brewing. I'm Derek. And I'm Jonathan. We We like like beer. beer. We're a podcast by beer lovers, for beer lovers, with beer creators. Some of our best stories start with beer. And now, it's time to make beer the story. Each hoppy pour has been on an often unexpected journey to become the brews you love. So pour another round and drink with us as we explore the stories behind your favorite beers and breweries. And if you like beer, like breweries, like some bad jokes and great puns, and like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you can learn about all our upcoming breweries on tap. Cheers to our sponsors. Are you ready to shuffle your way through Wisconsin's craft beer scene? Look no further than the Wisconsin Brew Deck from Venture Wisconsin. It's not just a deck of playing cards. It's your ticket to exclusive deals at 66 of your favorite local breweries across the state. That's right. The Wisconsin Brew Deck is officially statewide in 2024. The cards have buy one, get one pint free, and many of the breweries offer the option to buy one, get one flights. I see 1840 in Milwaukee in the deck here. Amorphic, we've got Lakefront Brewery, Three Sheeps up in Sheboygan, and one brewery that was a pleasant surprise for me when I visited was District 1 in Stevens Point, and they are also in the deck here with some savings. The 2024 brew deck is $29.95. Visit VentureWisconsin.com to order yours. Venture Wisconsin's Wisconsin Brew Deck. Cheers to great beer and even greater savings. Welcome to this week's episode of Pour Another Round, where we're here to discover and share the stories behind the breweries filling up your glass. Today, we're excited and honored to be joined by none other than Jim Cook, co-founder of Boston Beer Company, and purveyor of Sam Adams beer. Oh, it's a pleasure to have a beer with you guys. <laughs> Cheers. Same, likewise. So, Jim, you are a, you know a, certainly a fixture in the beer and brewing industry, but take us back to your beginnings. How did you even get into the beer industry? How did you get you know start start brewing this? delicious beer that we're enjoying um give us that give us your background in history oh sure um well it's pretty straightforward uh i mean my background in beer and brewing goes back to being born <laughs> my dad was a brewer he was a brewmaster in ohio you know way back when there was still uh, a lot of you know local breweries before they all died out so and my grandfather was a brewer and my great grandfather and my great, great grandfather and my great, great, great grandfather were all brewers wow. um, going all the way back to Germany. So, uh, you know, beers in my blood, I guess, you know, I think your blood is made up of beer by it sounds <laughs> uh, a little foam in there too. Is it? <laughs> um, but my dad never wanted me to go into the beer business, even though I was the sixth, oldest son uh in my family because the beer business was very hard on him he got his brewing degree at siebel institute of technology in chicago in 1948 and came out as a you know uh eager young brewer and realized that the industry was consolidating collapsing um that the you know the 25,000 barrel local breweries that are sort of the mainstay of the German brewing industry and had been in the U.S. were getting ground up by uh, larger and larger first regional then national breweries. So he eventually got out of the beer business. Uh, I think he told me the last six months he was a brewmaster, he made $500. I mean, not a month, not a week, (laughs) 500 bucks. And he had three kids. So wow, he was... He was glad to get out of it, uh, and when some years later, I guess in 1983, 84, uh, I told him that I was going to quit my job and start a small brewery, 
I think his words were, "You, Jim, you've done some really stupid things. This is <laughs> the dumbest effing thing you've ever come up with. Uh, so, because it was just, you know, he didn't think he'd make a living. He, he was looking at it from the wrong perspective. He thought I was going to try to compete with the big brewers and that they would just, you know, grind me up, which w- was true. Uh, I, I finally convinced him that that wasn't what I was going to do. I was going to make a totally different kind of beer. I was going to make really high quality beer with traditional ingredients, um, a lot of care and attention, sort of handcrafted rather than mass produced. And the, the light eventually went on. He was still very skeptical that there would be a market for that kind of beer because he had actually made the beer that I have in my hand, Sam, the beer that became Samuel Adams Boston Lager at the Wooden Shoe Brewing Company in Minster, Ohio in like 1950. Wow. And because they were going down the tubes, they were going to go broke. He thought, well, let me, I'll try, you know, this old family recipe. And uh, the owner uh, told him to dump it. He said, Charlie, uh, that was my dad's name. He said, Charlie, what people want today is water with a head on it. Uh, and what you made is the opposite of that. Uh, so <laughs> he and some of his friends, I think, kegged it and had one keg of it and enjoyed it. And the rest of it got dumped. So uh, I wasn't, this wow. is my great, great grandfather's recipe. Uh, my dad told me it was the best recipe we had in our family. And so I started making it in 1984 and the rest is kind of history. Wow. That's awesome. That, that lineage of brewers, but also the, the Samuel Adams Boston lager recipe. So we, we have poured our first round and that's uh, what we're drinking here is the, is the Boston lager remastered. So what, what does, what does that remastered mean? Remastered is very much like, you know, a, a CD when uh, a band takes, you know, a, a vinyl track and, you know, they go back and they make it a little cleaner, a little brighter. They get rid of all the scratches and pops. For, I guess, almost 40 years now, uh, I've always felt like we have not yet made the perfect Boston lager. I mean, you have a recipe, but not everything is specified in the recipe you know you have to you know interpolate in there and so over the years you know we've done things to make it a little smoother a little brighter you know our head brewer david grinnell who's been with me on that uh, for 36 years he he likened it to making a piece of furniture david's also a woodworker and he said you know you can always sand it a little smoother there's a finer <laughs> grain of sandpaper to use. And that's kind of what we've done with Boston Lager in over almost 40 years. If, if there was a chance to improve it, we did that. And it had to do, I mean, they're largely invisible, but it, I can tell you some of the things that we did was, you know, welding copper plates into the brew kettle because the brew um, and using a copper chain in the mash tub because the, uh, the yeast, likes a tiny, tiny bit of copper ions as a yeast nutrient, like pushing out the harvest date for the heirloom hops from Bavaria that we use in Boston Lager, because it turns out for hundreds of years, the Germans have harvested them them too early. They harvested them when they were at their visual peak, like this nice, bright, uh, flat green, but you know, and not leaving them on the vines to like turn, you know, grayish green, but the aromas improved during that extra week or two or developing a custom malt for Boston lager instead of, you know, the industry standard malt. So we've done things like that over the years, each one of which, you know, slightly, very slightly improved the quality of Sam Adams Boston lager all within the recipe We didn't change the ingredients. We didn't change the amounts. We didn't change the brewing time or the aging time or any of that. But all these little tweaks 
we didn't really say much about him. And then finally, you know, I thought, well, we've done all these things to sort of remaster it. So the latest one we did was replacing, you know, the minerals that you add to the water to, you know, to lower the pH um, with a uh, traditional German brewing process uh, that meets the German beer purity law. Purity law. It's called um, bioacidification. Mm-hmm. So you do a side fermentation and get some uh, lactic acid from it. It's a very soft uh, way to lower the pH, and it also enables you to eliminate a filtration step because it precipitates out a lot of the colony of rougher notes from the malt and the husks of the malt, the polyphenols and some tannin-like things. So resulted, the bottom line is you get a brighter, smoother, cleaner Boston lager. But honestly, if I didn't tell you we'd done something to it, you wouldn't notice it. But <laughs> or put the name remastered on the side. <laughs> no, or bioacidification. <laughs> well, it's it's still the iconic taste of Boston lager that we've come to know and love and and it's really great to know that it's this beautiful old family recipe. So mm-hmm. what was the story of bringing it from that family recipe into turning it into the iconic beer that it is today? Well, it wasn't an easy journey because <laughs> Boston Lager requires these classic traditional brewing processes that uh, are really not practiced anymore because they take uh, a lot of time, extra equipment, um, extra effort. They have funky names um, like decoction mash, um, <laughs> which uh, requires a, a fourth vessel in the brew house, a mash kettle. And what you do in a decoction mash is, you know, you raise the temperature with the basic, you know, heat source in the mash tub, usually some kind of steam jacket or even live steam through the, you know, the different enzyme rests. And you want to get it from like 136 up to maybe 168 really quickly. Um, That's the sacrification range. And you want to bring it through that range, not in like 20 minutes, but in less than eight minutes. Wow. And by doing that, you leave in, the larger sweetness molecules. Um, you get more of the like dimaltose, trimaltose, and dextrins, which are big enough that the yeast can't eat them, but small enough to convey uh, that drop of sweetness that you get in Boston lager. If they're, if they're smaller, the yeast will gobble them up and you they won't be left. So in order to do that, you basically take a significant portion of the mash out of the mash tub into a separate kettle and take it up to boiling. And then when it's around 200, 210, you drop it back into the main mash. And that takes the temperature up really quickly because you got all essentially boiling mash being dropped in with 136 degree uh, mash. So that's a decoction mash that takes an extra vessel. That was hard. It's croisoned, which means, you know, you let it ferment out and then you add, uh, about 25%, uh, unfermented beer into it from a, a subsequent brew, generally a week later after the fermentation's finished. And that, you know, rekindles the fermentation but at a kind of starvation level and forces the yeast to scavenge in the beer and clean up a lot of rough flavors um, that are inherent. Uh, And then, so those are very traditional lager brewing techniques that have been pretty much lost to, you know, cheaper, faster, quicker, lighter. And, And then finally, it's also what the Germans call Hopfenstomp, but we would call it dry hopping. So again, mm-hmm. when I was dry hopping Boston Lager, that was, you know, 
had almost never been heard of in the United States. So these were uh, basically, you know, historical processes that give you a smoother, cleaner, and more flavorful beer that were lost as people were trying to make beer less and less flavorful. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned, Jim, that when you were you had this concept to start your own brewery, you told your your father that you were just starting the small brewery. You weren't going to compete with these big guys. Clearly, that is not exactly what happened. <laughs> Sam Adams is is much larger. Boston Beer Company is is much larger than a, a small little uh, small town brewery. So how did how did how did that happen? What you know what transpired to go from for for you to go from just this tiny little brewery startup to what you are now today? Well, it certainly wasn't the plan. My business plan <laughs> is a complete embarrassment now. Uh, <laughs> business plan was we would grow for five years and then plateau uh, at eight people, uh, one about 5,000 barrels. We'd have a million two in revenue. Uh, and I could pay myself $75,000 a year and we'd just be sold in Boston. I mean, I had this vision that maybe if we were really successful someday, we might like get to New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> you did it. Level off there and I wouldn't have to travel. <laughs> so that was the, the plan. And I guess a couple of things happened. Fundamentally, there was just magic in those bottles. People never had a beer like this before. It's an extraordinary beer. I mean, even today with 10,000 craft brewers, there's nothing, you know, no one has ever been able to duplicate Boston lager. It's a really difficult, demanding beer to make. And, you know, a lot of the original styles, uh, New Albion and Sierra Nevada, there's, you know, thousands of pale ales, um, the original IPAs, there's bazillions of them, you know, even white beers and wheat beers, Hefeweizens, you know, they've all been, you know, cloned and duplicated hundreds, if not thousands of times. Nobody ever has ever made a, uh, a, a duplicate of Boston lager. Though people have tried, especially in the beginning, the beginning after we kind of took off, there was lots of lagers. There was, you know, Portland lager and Virginia lager and Nathan Hale lager, Ben Franklin lager, Thomas Jefferson lager, uh, <laughs> lots of them, but none of them survived because, you know, they, they just weren't any, anything extraordinary, frankly. And so, uh, and we got picked as the best beer in America four years running. And that was helpful, especially in making people rethink their beer choice. That title was, uh, it was a paradigm shift. People had never really thought about beer on a quality dimension, believe it or not. I mean, they, all the beers tasted the same. Some of them were a little lighter, some of them, but they, you know, it was a sea of sameness. Uh, mm-hmm. And the idea that one beer was actually better than another was as foreign as like, Coca-Cola being better than Pepsi, <laughs> better than, you know, Royal Crown or whatever, Walmart, Cola, Kirkland Cola. People don't compare the ingredients and the brewing process and don't have arguments about, you know, the complexities of it. So quality was just not a, a factor in consumers' decisions. And the idea that there was actually a best beer in America made people think about quality with beer. And we rode that wave for many years. That's a, that's a pretty impressive title to hold of the best beer in America. The tragic thing is that mine is running low. So I think it might be time to pour another round. We love that you're a part of the Pour Another Round family and hopefully enjoy our wittiness, camaraderie, and thought-provoking conversations. We would love you even more 
if you took your fandom to the next level with our fantastic merch. Imagine walking into a brewery, rocking a t-shirt or a hat that proudly states, you're here to pour another round. Deck out your beer fridge, water bottle, or your laptop with fancy pour another round stickers. Elevate your in-home bar space and drinking sessions with custom ceramic beer coasters or beer candles. And dive into the history of the Green Bay brewery scene with the book Green Bay Beer, A History of the Craft, written by Cameron Teske. Don't miss out on owning a piece of Pour Another Round magic. Visit pouranotherround.com and explore merch styles and color choices. Whether you're a seasoned listener or just discovering us, we've got something for you. Again, that's pouranotherround.com to place your order. Orders over $50 receive free shipping with the promo code FREESHIP. And, or at least for me, I wanted to ask, what about some of the other beers that you've made that really helped build Sam Adams and the Boston Beer Company into what it is today? I mean, as a brewer, you know, as you just pointed out, you always want another beer. <laughs> so, we, I, you know, early on, even along with the success of Boston Lager, it was pretty, I mean, we'd run out of beer in the very beginning. But I was curious about, you know, what were the boundaries of this thing that me and a few other pioneers had, had started? You know, how far could we go? Were there other beers to try? Could, you know, where did new beers come from? You know, in, and in the beginning, the craft brewing movement in the United States was basically about bringing old world styles of beer to the United States. So in the, in the very beginning, once you had a beer, maybe you'd make a porter or a stout or uh, an IPA or a Hefeweizen or uh, a Scotch ale or a double bock or uh, an Irish red so or a Pilsner um, or a Hellas or a Rattler, et cetera. Uh, so a lot of the original innovation of craft brewing was largely reviving old world styles of beer, chiefly ales, because, you know, ales are a little easier to make, they quicker to make, so you can turn your tanks faster, they're a lot more profitable. So a lot of it was on primarily the ale side, though we've been uh, lager brewers uh, since the beginning. And, and that was the creativity. And and then, I guess, at least for me, it was like maybe 1992, 93. And we just made Scotch Ale. Uh, it was a beautiful Scotch Ale. I remember actually going to the live, Boston Public Library and getting a book of, of uh, tartans, of plaid designs, um, you know, Scottish plaid designs. And we used that for the label. It was McPherson uh, mm-hmm. Tartan because uh, I had a friend uh, named McPherson and uh, but it didn't seem that creative and I got this idea well let me try to do something that's never been done before the strongest beer in the world back then was uh, generally acknowledged to be Sammy Claus a Swiss mm-hmm. beer and it was about depending on the batch 14 14 and a half percent alcohol and EKU 28 was right behind it. And I started thinking, you know, I'll bet I can go higher than that. Uh, <laughs> okay. so it became like this Star Trek of beer. Like, what if I take beer where no beer has gone before? You know, what crazy life forms will I, uh, and new modes of, of being, and will I discover uh, if we do that? So I set out on, uh, this journey to push the alcohol uh, as high as I could. And it, it got up to about uh, 36 proof, about 18 uh, ABV. And it, it was a completely unexplored world. It had unusual flavors and tastes in it. Um, and it had this, it had a burn at that level. <laughs> alcohol, uh, it, you know, it had this, you know, boozy attack on the palate. And uh, then I started thinking about how do I deal with that? 
And I realized I don't have to figure this out. Uh, I grew up in Southern Ohio uh, and there were people in that area in the South uh, that had already figured out down in Bourbon County, Kentucky. They realized that if you take something, you know, with a lot of ethanol in it, a lot of alcohol, you can moderate it by aging it in charred oak barrels. Mm -hmm. And I soon realized there was a river of charred oak barrels coming out of uh, that area of Kentucky and out of Tennessee, because by law, bourbon barrels can only be used once. So they were being sold to like Home Depot and they'd cut it in half (laughs) and make planters and sell them for 10 bucks. And (laughs) wow, these things probably cost two, 300 bucks. They're selling them for like 10 bucks. I'll bet I can get them cheap. So I called Bluegrass Cooperage and I got like a truckload of those and I started aging the beer in them and moving them from one to another. And and that beer was delicious. And that was, you know, a a beer that everybody's forgotten, but was a groundbreaking beer. It was called Triple Bach. It really was the lunatic fringe of brewing. This was (laughs) 93, 94. It was 36 proof. We packaged it in 250 milliliter bottles with a sherry cork in them and an expanding capsule around the cork because I wanted to allow the beer to continue to ferment. So it was yep. slowly fermented instead of blowing the cork out, it would just kind of burp uh, and let the CO2 out. And it was, we sold it for a hundred dollars a bottle. It was cobalt blue, but it looked black because of the color of the beer. And then we had the label etched on it with platinum so it was just like this oh and it was it created the barrel aging movement nobody Mm -hmm. thought you could age beer in used spirits barrels until Mm -hmm. i did it everybody thought it was illegal because technically you're co-mingling two different classes of alcoholic beverage which you're not allowed to do and then sell it because they don't know how to tax it but i convinced a guy at the BATF, it was, that's what it was called then, it's now the TTB, that this was a good thing. If, you know, it's like, well, you know, I could obviously age it in new oak barrels, right? And it's, yeah, well, how about used? I mean, think of these poor guys, they're selling all these barrels for nothing. Maybe this will create a demand. And, you know, and the bourbon folks will get more money for something now they get, they don't get anything for, and it's a win-win. And uh, it's a long story, but I managed to get the guy to sign the papers, <laughs> make that legal. And, you know, henceforth, uh, aging beer in used spirits barrels has been a real innovation, a real contribution to flavor profiles, some really cool stuff. I think there's quite a few people that are pretty happy that you managed to uh, yeah, get thanks that for, happening. Thanks for doing that, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I just wanted to have something good to drink. Right. Well, we're going to pour another round with your with your Samuel Adams Oktoberfest, which we'll get back to talking about in a moment. But speaking of strong beers um, or or high ABV beers, let's talk about Utopias. Uh, I had a chance to try that at GABF last year and at the Sam Adams beer and brunch um, event and have tried it a couple times now. But Tell us about Utopias, what it is, where the concept came from, and how high ABV that one is. Oh, my. All right. So Triple Bach came out in 94. We made it uh, for a few years. And then, you know, when it kept getting stronger um, and we kept keeping the barrels, we have we still have liquid from 1993. So we've got 30 year old beer now. And it, it got stronger. We made for the millennium, uh, a millennium ale, tried to package it so it would last for a thousand years. So it wasn't a Y2K beer. It was a Y3K beer. Uh, (laughs) Okay. It has a special cork and a hydrophobic capsule around it. So in theory, it should last for a thousand years. And then I, we kept going this is like the voyage of the Starship Enterprise. So <laughs> off we went to new 
galaxies, new systems. And we finally broke the 40, uh, 40 proof barrier. And we got to like 22% alcohol in 2001. And every odd numbered year since then, we've had a release of Utopias. The alcohol, some of the barrels we have now are like 31% alcohol, but we blend it down. We blend it based on flavor. I mean, this is not a, a project just to pump out high ethanol. It's to make things that are genuinely delicious. So we're running 28, 29, and you know, maybe someday the flavor will take us further, but we want the flavor to take us there. And Utopias is like nothing you've ever tasted. It exists yeah. in the realm of like a vintage port and a fine cognac and an old <laughs> sherry. You know, it's got mm -hmm. fruitiness in it from the port. It's got a lot of that wood from the sherry. And it's got that high alcohol kind of brightness of a cognac. So, but much smoother. It doesn't have that fierce ethanol attack on your palate that you get mm -hmm. from a cognac. Because of these years of aging in wood, I think the vanillins are, are able to mitigate uh, that level of ethanol. And, you know, it's just, it's like nothing you've ever had. You drink it uh, in a special glass. Uh, Riedel, the glassware makers uh, in Europe, the people who make like the high-end wine glasses, um, they're really, they make the best glasses in the world. They're, uh, and they're very, they make them for function, but they are beautiful. Uh, they loved Utopias. And so uh, they called and said, we want to come to your brewery in Boston and design a glass for you. So they designed a glass for Utopias. And you, it's a, you drink it in sort of a, it's, uh, how do you describe it? Like a cognac glass. That's not a mm -hmm. brandy glass, not the big snifter ones. Um, yeah. you pour like a half an ounce in there and it just, it's explosively aromatic. So you just, by the time you get it near anywhere near your nose, you know what's coming. So that's, <laughs> we, we make about 15,000 bottles. Um, we distribute, they're all numbered. Uh, the first like 2,800 go to our coworkers at Boston beer. So everybody gets, uh, a bottle according to their tenure. So like I get bottle number one and Dean gets bottle number two and Nicole gets bottle number three and Brenda gets bottle number four and so on. And it, the longer you're with the company, the lower your number is. Oh, cool. And then we give our distributors one uh, each, and then we sell the rest, and we have to ration it. And it's usually between like twenty four and twenty eight percent. Is that accurate? Yeah, well, I think we we left twenty four behind years. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. headed to, headed toward thirty. Yeah, we're like twenty eight, twenty nine. Yeah, because these barrels. I mean, we lay down new barrels every year, and then we're using up the old ones. So it's it's not made the way you make a beer. You know, normally you make a beer, you, you get your, your malt and your hops and you go to the brew house and you do the mash and the louder, you brew it, you put it in a fermenter. And then, you know, if, you, if you're a lager, you might put it in an aging tank. And then when it's ready, you package it and you s send it out, you ship it. With Utopias, it is constructed from this, a uh, large library of barrels uh, that we keep in an explosion-proof room uh, because uh, the vapors uh, from these barrels are explosive. So we can't put it in a normal building. We have to have a special building where the you know the walls blow out easily in case the stuff explodes because it'll burn. So we keep it there. And when we want to make a release, which is every two years, we go and we start tasting barrels and then blending them until we get what we want. We generally try to add some new kind of barrel every year, you know, whether it's a 
you know, a scotch barrel that began as a bourbon barrel or it's something more exotic like, you know, a Calvados or some kind of interesting style of wine. So we're always trying to layer in more flavors to it. So each one of them is, you know, built on top of the previous layers. And how many years did you say Utopius has been going back? Utopius itself to 2021, but uh, the foundation goes back to 1993. Okay. With Triple Bach. Okay, sure. Well, we so we are drinking the Samuel Adams Oktoberfest. Tell us about Oktoberfest. I I personally love your Oktoberfest. It's it's certainly one of my favorites that I look forward to drinking every year. Um, talk about your Oktoberfest and where that kind of lands in in your lineup of beers. I'm glad you like it because uh, you get to drink lots of beers, both of you. So uh, <laughs> it's someone's got to do it. It's yeah, it's a good thing to do. Well, <laughs> if nobody drank our beers. We couldn't make them, so um, I'm grateful. Uh, you keep making them, we'll keep drinking them. That's a deal. <laughs> Utop- I mean, Oktoberfest originated in 1971 in Germany when I was at the Oktoberfest there, and I fell in love with the beer. Back then, the beer was different than what you get now. It was... Mm-hmm. Bigger, maltier, smoother. You know, now uh, the Oktoberfest beers are much lighter, more drinkable, thinner, which is fine because, uh, you know, they, they want to sell a lot of beer in those tents and make a lot of money <laughs> selling, you know, a, a liter of beer for uh, $18 or whatever they're charging these days. So they want you to have a few of them because it's their chance to make money. And I remembered that beer. And in the late 80s, I started with this idea of, well, beer historically uh, in in the brewer's world has reflected the rhythm of the seasons. You know, there's beers for summer, beers for fall, beers for winter, beers for spring. And actually the first first seasonal beer I made was – uh, Samuel Adams Double Bach. Uh, and that's a wonderful beer. You know, that evolved into Triple Bach, into Utopius. Uh, so in some ways, that was the very beginning. And, and we, I did that for in February and during Bach season. Uh, and I think that beer has actually won more medals at the GABF than any other beer. If you wondered... Wow. Um, I think it's got the most medals of any beer uh, in it. So it was a great beer, but it's not something you're going to consume a lot of. And uh, I didn't make something for summer, but autumn came and I thought, well, got to make Oktoberfest. That's just, that's the classic autumn beer. It fits that that time of the year, you know, when uh, there's a little bit of chill in the air. How did F. Scott Fitzgerald put it? When the blue smoke of dry leaves was in the air and the wind blew the laundry stiff upon the line, I decided to return home um, <laughs> at the end of The Great Gatsby. And I've, I've liked that. Uh, that's just that feeling. So Oktoberfest embodied that for me. And we actually brewed it, I believe, for eight years trying to perfect it. And we didn't get it. David and I worked on it every because you have this one bout of, you you know, you make it once a year. And so you could Mm -hmm. a few batches, but it's not like something you you brew every week. So it took us about eight years to finally nail the Oktoberfest that we have today. That would have been like 96 or 97. Finally, you know, we perfected it. And I remember uh, tasting together the first you know, release and going, I think, David, I think we nailed it. And he's like, (laughs) damn straight. So we've made it since then. It is now the largest Oktoberfest, largest selling Oktoberfest beer in the world, which is kind of amazing. And about hmm, six years ago, I think, we entered it into the German Beer Awards, the Deutsche Landegeschift. And that year, the 
award ceremony was in Munich during Oktoberfest. So I was there, and when they came to announcing the best Oktoberfest beer in the world, they said, and the best Oktoberfest in the world is Samuel Adams' Oktoberfest. And there was dead silence. Oh, no. All these German brewers. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> what do we have this, left? This damn American company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Though, you know, it uses German hops. We can't make it uh, as good as it is without Hollertail, Middlefru, and Tetnang hops in it. So yeah. I have to tip my hat to the Bavarians who uh, discovered, developed, and cultivated those hops for us. So, and it's, I think of the seasonals, it might be my favorite, but it's really, I mean, I'm in New England. We have real seasons here. We don't <laughs> want the same beer in the dead of winter that we want in the heat of summer. You know, summer ale is a great beer, a really great beer on a, on a summer day in New England when it's like 80 degrees and dry and clear and clean. And it's, you know, and it's 15 hour day. I mean, it's the best day you can have. You want a mm-hmm. summer ale, but it's cold now. I got to wear a fleece when I go outside. <laughs> hey, we're right there with you in Wisconsin. We love the seasons. It was 40 degrees when I woke up this morning, so I threw on a flannel and now drinking a Sam Adams Oktoberfest. It's perfect. kind of the gr- it's the perfect way to end a day. It yeah, is. You, you, dress, you dressed to drink an Oktoberfest beer with the flannel. Uh, Darn right. You know, it it kind of makes me feel okay that summer's gone. It's mm-hmm. like, it okay. does. Yeah, There's some great fall beers. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just nice to, as a brewer, be able to reflect that rhythm of the seasons in the beer that I make. Yeah. Where Where is Samuel, Sam Adams beer available? Are you in all 50 states? And yeah. then, um, yeah. are, you know, internationally, I imagine, as well. Yeah, um, we're in all 50 states. That took me... 10 years okay. to get there. And then um, we're in about 30 other countries, though. I mean, to be honest, I'm not, I don't put a lot of effort into that. I mean, I'm an American. I grew up here. I didn't have my passport, yeah. passport till I was like 25. So <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm not that global or international. I don't, and I don't want to drag my ass around the world, you know, stuff <laughs> Hard enough sure. to, you know, sell it in Oregon and Las Vegas and San Antonio. Um, I'll let, I mean, and other countries who have their own beers. Sure. So tell us, Jim, about some of the other brands that are under the Boston Beer umbrella. You know, we, brands that maybe people don't realize are part of Boston Beer. Yeah. Boston Beer's always had this spirit of exploration. Mm-hmm. I've always, you know, I, I get bored. <laughs> Some people think I have the attention span of a gerbil. I've been accused of that. Oh, no. <laughs> and to me, there's just lots of cool things you can do with the fermentation of yeast. Uh, so the first thing outside of classic beer that we made was to revive hard cider in the United States. Hard cider was actually the primary alcoholic beverage in the United States up until about the Civil War. Um, it was, you know, the country was very agrarian. Everybody had orchards. You had all these apples in the fall. You couldn't eat them all. You didn't have a way to keep them. Um, and you wanted to preserve the food value in them. And by turning them into uh, hard cider, you could keep them stable. It wasn't going to infect or rot. Uh, and uh, it was very commonly, uh, you know, 10 or 15% of the calories on a, a farm in the United States after Johnny Appleseed spread apple orchards into the Midwest. It was a source of nutrition and a very classic American uh, beverage. We couldn't get real cider apples in the U.S., Cider apples are not like grocery store apples. They're very tannic. They're acidic. 
the apples we eat today have been bred to be kind of sweet uh, and not that complex. But uh, real cider apples are kind of, they look like crab apples. They're kind of uh, angry, gnarly looking uh, apples. They're not, you know, what we see in the grocery store. And they are still grown in Europe. So we get apples from Normandy, um, which are bittersweet apples with a good load of tannins. And then we get more acidic apples from Northern Italy. And we bring them in the United States, uh, the juice, and we make Angry Orchard. So that mm. that was uh, about 20 some years ago. And that's led to the revival of hard cider in the U.S. There's now a thousand uh, cideries in the U.S. And then we started, you know, pushing further afield. And one of the, um, the beverages that has a lot of history is tea. And so we thought about hard tea because, you know, well, how do you make tea? Duh, you make it in a kettle. Guess what we <laughs> have? A kettle. So, and then tanks where you can steep the tea leaves in very similar to dry hopping. Uh, you know, you can make a really nice tea in your refrigerator. It's not so harsh, smoother, but it takes a week or sun tea. So there were different steeping techniques that you can do in a brewery. And it just, so we made a hard tea. Um, we called it Bodine's. That was a total flop. And then there was a band called the Bodine's that sued that. <laughs> so, oh, no. Uh, yeah. Um, but I really liked it. Uh, and there, it's, it was unique. This was 1999. There was nothing like it, though. There was a you know a little tea uh, bubble with some quality teas being made. Snapple was uh, growing. So Americans were getting used to, to cold tea. Uh, and so... We had to change the name to get the band off our back and we did <laughs> the twisted tea and, you know, it's grown for 25 years. Uh, it started in a handful of states that all started with M, but weren't Mississippi. So Maine, Michigan, Montana, Missouri, Massachusetts. I mean, luckily there were a lot of M states. Uh, and it it was adopted by like blue collar drinkers, but not like dumbass blue collar, chip <laughs> kicker, redneck, that kind of you know thing. They were people who had real skills, who were very clever. Uh, they would send us pictures of things they were doing while they're drinking twisted tea, and they were like, "These guys are geniuses." I mean, it was like a guy. <laughs> on a really hot day, obviously doesn't have a pool, but he's got plastic. So he lines the bed of his truck, fills it with water, <laughs> sitting there drinking a twisted tea in the bed of his pickup truck that he's made into a pool. Or wow. a guy at a barbecue, he had to do like 13 hot dogs at once. So he's, he's drinking a twisted tea and he's got a rake in his hand, one of those rakes with lots of tines, the long... He's got 13 mm -hmm. hot dogs on that rake and he's cooking 13 hot dogs at a time. So, you know, blue collar geniuses, I like to think of them. Those were our core drinkers and that's where it started. And over 20, almost 25 years now, it's slowly expanded and grown. Yeah, that that's that's amazing. And, you know, Twisted Tea, those stories have spun right into those advertising campaigns for it. And when I think of Twisted Tea, I think of that iconic pickup bed swimming pool. Just yeah, yeah. Hot summer, hot summer people. day, enjoying a Twisted Tea. Well, the ads; those are real people. Those are our drinkers. You know, they've sent in pictures and things like that, and they're like, "These are passionate fans. Why don't we bring them together, throw a party, and film it?" And Love uh, it. the guy who's represented Twisted Tea. There's a guy in there, Billy. Billy shows up with the tea drop. <laughs> Billy was uh, a sales guy for us, and he loved Twisted Tea, and he loved the people who drank it. And I said, Billy, why don't you just be the Twisted Tea guy? So he loves motorcycles, loves going to motorcycles. It's a big, Twisted Tea is big at, at bike rallies. 
I mean, it's maybe the number one thing at Sturgis. I, and Billy shows up with his bike. He's got a sidecar, and then he's got his bulldog, Tank. So, Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, Tank's in the commercials, if you look. Uh, I'll have to look for Tank. Yeah, yeah. But they're, they're all real guys. They're all real people. Well, my, my wife is a big fan of Twisted Tea. So well, you married uh, Mel, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so. Well, Jim, I, I know we're, we're um, coming short on time, so we do have, I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface of your story and the story of Boston Beer Company and Samuel Adams, but one of the, the last questions we ask every guest that comes on Pour Another Round is, if you're not drinking your own beer, what might we find you drinking? And that could be other beer, booze, wine, non-alcoholic whatever if you're not drinking uh, boston beer company any boston beer company products which take which takes a lot of things off the table what might we find you drinking you know man i do get asked that question a lot like you ask it to everybody everybody asks it to me but i'll, yep. I'll try to give you a thoughtful answer i mean frankly you know, this is a great time to be drinking craft beer so mm-hmm. if i'm in an environment and there's a beer and i've never had it i'm gonna go for that so I sure. have a lot of curiosity about what other people are doing. If I'm not going to have a beer, I will probably have a whiskey from Boston Harbor Distillery, which was started by a woman named Rhonda Kalman. And Rhonda was my partner. Rhonda and I worked together for 20 years. Um, and when she and she helped build Boston Beer Company, she's kind of cool. the untold story. Uh, she ran our sales force. She ran most of the company because she was way more organized than I was. <laughs> you were just the ideas guy, huh? Well, I made the beer and Rhonda <laughs> got it delivered and talked the wholesalers into carrying it and you know built the sales force and all those things. And she has a distillery and she's you know totally quality obsessed. She makes great whiskeys. It's small. It's a fun distillery, and uh, she's actually made some whiskeys out of Sam Adams. So cool. uh, it's you know bringing the partnership back together, uh, and it reminds me of the extraordinary human being that I was fortunate enough to start Boston Beer Company when I have a sip of of uh, Boston Harbor Distillery's whiskey. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Jim, thanks so much for giving us some of your time today and, and talking about Boston Beer Company and the Samuel Adams brand, uh, uh, amongst many other brands that fall under Boston Beer Company. And like I said, I, I feel like we, you know, we might need a a part two of Boston Beer Company here at some point because I I don't think we even scratched the surface on your story and the story of your brewery and. Um, where you guys came from. So really appreciate you coming on the show today. And um, for all of our listeners, be sure to grab a Samuel Adams beer um, or another product from Boston Beer Company. And and when you do, pour another round for us. I promise to all of our listeners that Boston Lager is better than you even remember it. It just brings back all the memories. I loved drinking this. It was the first time I'd had one in a little while. And I'm so glad I did. Yeah, it reminds you of how good it is. Thank, yeah. thank yeah. you for saying that. I have that feeling every time I have one. Cheers. It, 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 was, it was a delight. Cheers, Jim. Thank you so much. This was fun. My pleasure. <laughs>